everyone, and welcome back to Crisis of Crime. I'm your host, Rachel Means, and I'm a criminologist. Thank you so much for joining me for my weekly podcast where I discuss the issues facing our criminal justice system. So today I want to talk about the crime of murder. I'll start with the history of murder, discussing the first evidence of a murder occurring. Then I'll be speaking about the punishment and charges for murder over time leading up to what we have today. Next, I'll discuss the most common motivations for murder, and in the last section, we're going to be looking at some proven strategies that help lower the murder rate. All right, so we have a lot to cover today, so I'm going to go ahead and jump in. According to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, the definition of murder is to kill a human being unlawfully and with premeditated malice. When we think about the first documented case of murder, if you've read the Bible or you're a Christian, I'm sure the first thing that comes to mind is Cain and Abel. Cain killed Abel because he thought that God loved Abel more. But unfortunately, we don't have any physical evidence that Cain killed Abel, so instead we're going to go with the documented physical evidence that we have. So the remains of a young adult human were found in a cave in Spain dating back to around 430,000 years ago during the Middle Pleistocene Epoch. So the remains weren't of Homo sapien, the humans that we have today, but rather a Neanderthal or a Denisovan. My guess would be Neanderthal based on the location. And paleontologists were able to piece back together one of the skulls and found two cranial fractures located on the left side of the forehead just above the eye. And the fracture wounds were almost identical, indicating that it was unlikely to have been caused by something occurring in nature, such as falling and hitting your head, but instead indicate that the trauma was intentional and was caused by a blunt object. The fractures don't look like they had any time to heal, suggesting that the wound was fatal. All this evidence combined indicates that he or she was bludgeoned to death by another person. Additionally, the remains were found in a deep shaft located in that cave in Spain, and altogether there were remains from about 30 different humans, suggesting that this shaft was used as a mass grave. Evidence of the earliest legal system can be found in China and was created around 2500 BCE. According to historians, there was very little protection for the offender's rights, and the Chinese laws relied heavily on capital punishment for many crimes, including murder. Additionally, in Babylon in 1754 BCE, we also see the most famous legal system found in ancient texts, and that's the Code of Hammurabi. I'm sure many of you have heard the phrase, an eye for an eye. Well, this comes from Hammurabi's Code. And the code was comprised of 282 rules to be followed, descriptions of fines and punishments for when those rules were broken, and established standards of commerce. And the punishment for murder was death. So what about the history of murder punishments in North America? Well, prior to the colonization of North America, the Native American tribes had their own way of punishing those who committed murder. And it really depended on the situation and the tribe. So I'm going to talk about one tribe in particular called the Crow Tribe, and they were located on the Great Plains. An important position within the Crow Tribe's policing structure was an official titled the Pipe Holder. If two individuals were in a quarrel and which would likely lead to them fighting to the death, 
The pipe holder would present a sacred pipe during the quarrel, and both men would have to cease fighting immediately and go their separate ways. If one of the men refused to back down, he was killed immediately. There's another documented case where a man killed a young boy and immediately regretted it, and he showed his regret by mutilating himself, by cutting off multiple fingers, cutting his hair, and slashing his legs. And the family of the young boy decided that his mutilation plus the killing of his horse was punishment enough for his crime. So in regard to the Native American tribes, it seemed that there was a lot of discretion taken depending on the situation and that the victims were involved in deciding the punishment for the criminal. During the time of the American colonies, the punishment for murder varied by colony. For example, in the colony of North Carolina, there were no jails or prisons, so the punishment for every crime was the death penalty. And they had a lot of crimes that fell into that category of needing the death penalty. Of course, murder was one of them, but they also had capital punishment for crimes such as arson, castration, sodomy, bestiality, and general mayhem. On the opposite end of that spectrum, colonies such as South Jersey and Pennsylvania did not have capital punishment for any crimes, including murder. After the Revolutionary War ended in 1783, the newly found United States needed to set up a legal system. But they didn't want to just copy and paste the same legal system that they had from the country which they just fought to not be a part of. Traditionally in Great Britain, crimes such as murder, rape, theft, and forgery were all subject to the death penalty. But the newly founded United States was not a fan of the death penalty. So in 1794, we see the first distinctions between first and second degree murder. First-degree murder is very similar to what it still is today, and that's if the murder was premeditated, such as poisoning someone or lying in wait. And in 1794, this was punishable by death. Now, second-degree murder was if someone was murdered in the act of carrying out another crime, such as arson, rape, and robbery, and this was not punishable by death. So what classifications of murder do we have today in the United States? Well, before I get into it, I just want to let you know I'm not going to go into the sentencing for the different degrees of murder because they differ from state to state. So if you are interested in finding out what the sentencing is for a murder charge in your state, it can be found with a simple Google search. So we have four different classifications for murder charges in the United States. The first is first-degree murder, and the definition hasn't changed much, as I mentioned. And it's when a murder was premeditated and requires malice or evil intent. And this is the most serious type of murder charge that one can receive. So an example of a situation where the offender would likely get first-degree murder would be if a man's mistress becomes pregnant and he can't have his wife finding out about the other woman and the pregnancy, so he decides to murder his mistress and unborn child, disposing of the body where he hopes that no one will ever find them. And it's going to be classified as first-degree murder because it was premeditated. He planned out how he was going to murder and dispose of his mistress and unborn offspring. And it was his intention to bring harm to his mistress and child by killing them, indicating that he was acting with malice or evil intent. So as of today, 25 states have the death penalty as an option for first-degree murderers. Next, we have second-degree murder, and this definition has changed since 1794. And it's intentionally murdering someone without premeditation, and these are generally called crimes of passion. 
So an example where the person would likely get second-degree murder would be if a husband comes home to find his wife in bed with another man. In a fit of rage, he kills his wife and the other man. So it'll be classified as second-degree murder because it was not premeditated. He was not planning on killing anyone when he walked through his bedroom door, but in a fit of rage and passion, he killed his wife and the other man because of the affair. He did, however, intend to murder his wife and the other man once he realized the situation, so we can say that he was acting with malice or evil intent. And as of today, in all states, second-degree murder is not subject to the death penalty. Next, we have manslaughter, and that's where the offender did not plan or intend to kill the victim. So you'll kind of see a pattern here. First-degree murder is when they plan and intend to kill. Second is when they don't plan, but they do intend to kill, and manslaughter is now where they don't plan or intend to kill. So an example of manslaughter would be hitting a pedestrian in a crosswalk while you're driving and killing them. So the driver did not plan to kill the pedestrian, nor did they intend to kill them. And lastly, we have felony murder, and this is only recognized by some states, where others might classify it as first or second degree murder. And it's when a victim is murdered while the offender or the offenders are carrying out another crime. So an example would be if a victim is killed during a bank robbery, while everyone involved with the robbery can then be charged with felony murder, and that's including the getaway driver who may not have even been inside the bank at the time of the murder. But because they were involved with the robbery, which led to someone getting killed, they can then be charged with felony murder. And felony murder is subject to the death penalty in some states. Since 1976, there have actually been 22 offenders who were convicted of a felony murder, but did not actually kill the individual themselves, who have still received the death penalty. An example of this type of offender who is receiving the death penalty, even though they weren't the one who committed the murder themselves, would be an offender who ordered a contract kill on a victim. Now on a quick side note, justifiable homicide, which is often misconstrued as being murder, is not technically classified as a murder. And that's taking someone's life in order to prevent the murder of oneself or to protect another person. And because it's not classified as a murder, it's not subject to criminal charges. So this would be if somebody was claiming self-defense, they would be claiming a justifiable homicide. Now, in these cases of justifiable homicide, like I said, they're not subject to criminal charges, but they can be subject to civil lawsuits such as wrongful death lawsuits by the family of the victims. What causes people to commit murder? Well, each offender will have their own individual motive for taking someone else's life, but in general, Motives can be reduced down to the four L's, lust, love, loathing, and loot. Lust refers to a lover killing their rival in order to gain the object of their desire. This could be sex and a relationship or an item that they're lusting after. Lust can also be thrill killings, where the offender receives sexual arousal from the act of killing. Love refers to mercy killings, such as a mother killing their child that is suffering from a major deformity. Euthanasia or assisted suicide is also a form of a love killing, because it's a mercy killing of someone with an incurable disease. Loathing refers to killing someone out of hate, 
and this could be a child killing their abusive parent, extremist groups, or rivalries, such as rival gangs or countries. And lastly, we have loot, and this is killing for financial gain. This might be killing a spouse to collect the insurance money, or rival gang members competing for drug markets, or even something like killing someone in the pursuit of a robbery. So let's briefly take a look at some of the most famous murderers throughout history and see where their motives fall along the four L's. Ted Bundy killed over 30 women that we know about before being sentenced to the death penalty, and he found torturing and killing his victims sexually arousing. Therefore, Ted Bundy's motives for murder would fall under lust, because as you remember, the lust motive includes thrill killings where the offender receives sexual arousal from the act of killing. Next we have Osama bin Laden. Bin Laden was an Islamic extremist who believed that Muslim people should create a single Islamic state, which required waging a holy war, or jihad. Therefore, bin Laden hated everyone who did not align with these ideals, especially those in Western culture. Most famously, he orchestrated the murder of over 3,000 Americans during the 9-11 terrorist attacks in 2001. He was later killed by American forces in May of 2011. This places bin Laden's motives for murder under the loathing motive because he was killing out of hate, and this includes extremist groups. And finally... Joaquin Guzman, or El Chapo, he was the leader of the Sinaloa drug cartel and committed murder in pursuit of drug trafficking, as well as rival gang wars, such as the conflict between the Sinaloa cartel and the Tijuana cartel in the late 80s and early 90s. After multiple arrests and multiple prison escapes, he was finally captured in Mexico in 2016 and extradited to the United States in 2017. A term of his extradition is that he would not be subject to the death penalty, so he is now serving a life sentence at ADX Florence, the most secure supermax federal prison in the United States. So where does El Chapo fall in terms of the four L's of motivations for murder? Well, he actually falls under more than one. Loot and loathing. Loot because he killed others in pursuit of expanding and maintaining his drug trafficking operation and loathing because he often went to war with rival drug cartels. So how can we lower the murder rate? I want to take a look at an initiative that was written by the Jacksonville Community Council Incorporated for the city of Jacksonville, Florida, and examine what they identified as common themes leading to an increased murder rate and what short- and long-term solutions were suggested to effectively lower the rate of murder. I think this initiative is a great example of what reforms need to take place in order to enact real systematic change within a community to reduce the murder rate as well as other crimes. The initiative was published in 2006 and is titled Reducing Murder, a Community Response. And the goal was to reduce the murder rate in Jacksonville, Florida, by using a multidisciplinary approach and community involvement. As I've talked about in previous podcasts, policing alone does not lower the crime rate at all, and that includes the murder rate. The same goes for punishment for crimes without any rehabilitation. 
Evidence suggests that our current prison system does little to reduce the crime rate and actually encourages recidivism, or someone's chances of reoffending. So what were the common themes identified by the Jacksonville Community Council, Inc. that were leading to an increased murder rate? Five themes were identified. The first is racial division. And that's referring to that neighborhood dysfunction caused by years of institutional racism, segregation, oppression, and racial blindness by the surrounding community was increasing the rate of violence in those neighborhoods. Second is the lack of positive male role models. Without positive male role models, young boys tend to emulate the tough and violent male figures they see on TV, and young black males were particularly at risk. Third was a loss of hope, meaning that children were growing up without hope for the future. They were being raised in racial and economic isolation and witnessing violence at a young age, and this hopelessness leads to more violence. Fourth was the lack of prevention efforts. Crime prevention is more effective than crime punishment, and it's more cost-effective. Prevention includes creating better schools and education programs, substance abuse prevention and treatment programs, better economic opportunities, and increased access to health care. And lastly, the fifth issue that was identified was the lack of rehabilitation programs. This mainly pertains to jails and prisons. Focusing only on punishment and not on rehabilitation leads to recidivism and ultimately more violence. Rehabilitation within the jails and prison systems includes things like substance abuse treatments and job and skills training. The Jacksonville Initiative had two short-term solutions. The first was engaging young adult men in the community. Murders in Jacksonville were a predominantly male problem, with 91% of all offenders being male, as well as 76% of victims. Therefore, their goal would be to reach out to the young males in the community and get them engaged and help them see how their actions can hurt the community as a whole. These initiatives should be organized by neighborhood leaders and leaders of faith-based organizations. An initiative that they used as an example was one from Boston, where they were able to negotiate ceasefire agreements among rival gang members. And the second short-term solution was getting illegal guns off the streets. And this can be done through programs such as a gun bounty program. Now, this is not the same as a gun buyback program since the guns are in fact illegal, but it's instead alerting authorities when you know that someone has an illegal weapon. The Jacksonville Initiative also had 10 long-term solutions, and these solutions are going to be much more impactful and effective than the short-term solutions. Now, the first one is to admit that racism is a problem and address it. This includes listening to individuals who have experienced institutional racism and have written reports with recommendations on how to change it. Some of those reports include the Race Relations Progress Report and Beyond the Talk, Improving Race Relations. And it is paramount that these recommendations are taken from those individuals who have experienced institutional racism firsthand, and not white policymakers who believe that they know what is best, because really that's what's creating a lot of these issues in the first place. The second solution was providing funding for successful prevention programs. 
Now, prevention programs generally have a large upfront cost, but they're worth it in the long run. And a way to fund these programs upfront may require budget changes, such as defunding police departments. The third solution is providing stronger role models. And this can be done by investing in programs such as Big Brothers and Big Sisters. The fourth solution is improving economic opportunities. And this can be done by increasing job training programs, paying employees living wages, and providing better public transportation. Now, it doesn't mention it in the report, but as an outside criminologist and a woman, I just want to add that having better access to affordable childcare and access to birth control options and abortion will improve economic opportunities, especially for women. The fifth solution is improving the relationship between law enforcement and the community. Many neighborhoods in Jacksonville did not see law enforcement as partners who were there to protect them. Police need to be reformed to weed out corruption and misconduct, all while building trust through community outreach efforts. The sixth solution is changing the culture of violence. Now, this one is not an easy one to accomplish, but it starts with having leaders in the community speak out against violence and engage with the community working to reduce the culture of violence. The seventh solution is distinguishing between drug traffickers and drug users. Those who traffic and sell illegal substances should be pursued as criminal and arrested, while drug users should be provided treatment with no criminal charges. The eighth solution is reducing domestic violence. And this particularly was aimed at reducing the number of children who are subject to witness domestic violence by improving social services and child protective services. Ninth is improving children's success in education. Low literacy rates and poor education increase the chances of violent behaviors. Schools should no longer use out-of-school suspensions. Rather, they should be working to keep kids in school, such as working to reduce truancy and children dropping out. After-school programming should also be expanded. And finally, the tenth solution is rehabilitation efforts for ex-offenders. There should be mandatory job and or skill training for inmates in jails and prison. The city also needs to provide better reentry resources for ex-offenders to transition back into society, such as halfway houses and businesses partnering with jails and prisons to provide employment to ex-offenders. And lastly, the city needs to stop classifying the majority of nonviolent offenses as felonies, because being labeled as a felon results in a stigma that will impact almost every aspect of that person's life, including obtaining employment, housing, and even their right to vote. Now, for everything that I just read above on how to reduce the murder rate, will also help reduce other types of crimes as well. While some of the solutions above are focusing directly on reducing the murder rate, such as focusing on community engagement with young adult men, other ones, such as prevention programs, improving education, rehabilitation efforts, and improving economic opportunities, will help reduce crime across the board. So now we have to ultimately ask the question, was this initiative successful? If we look at the crime data for violent crimes in Jacksonville, we see that the violent crime rate was at its highest point over the last two decades in 2007, right after this initiative was published. But two years later, in 2009, 
we see a significant decrease in the number of violent crimes, which continued to decrease into 2010. In fact, we see the violent crime rate reduced by 55% between 2007 and 2010. Now, during that time between 2007 and 2010, we do see a decrease in violent crimes as a whole for the United States, but only by about 15%. Now that's compared to the 55% that Jacksonville, Florida was able to reduce their violent crime, which shows that this initiative was very successful at reducing the violent crime rate in Jacksonville, Florida. Alright folks, so that's everything I wanted to cover today in regards to the crime of murder, its history, motivations, and solutions on how to reduce it. So what are your thoughts on how we can reduce the murder rate? Do you agree with the short and long-term solutions suggested by the initiative in Jacksonville? Let me know your thoughts on Twitter. You can find me at Crisis of Crime, or you can send me an email at crisisofcrime at gmail.com. As always, I look forward to hearing from you. I hope everyone's able to get out and soak up some of this lovely July weather, all while staying safe. And until next time, this has been Crisis of Crime.